There we are. Hey, good evening, everyone. John Henry Soto here, along with George Batista. Welcome to Counterparts, where we spotlight conversations with creative minds, and not just creative minds, but influential and in inspiring minds like today. Today or tonight, we're going to have Bobby Watts on the show. He is the CEO for the National Healthcare for the Homeless Council, based right here out of Nashville, Tennessee. And we're very, very excited to have him on the show. We're going to be talking about a lot of uh, in inspiring things, his life and his journey and the journey of so many people that work with him. It's going to be really, really awesome conversation, conversation. So please hang tight. All righty, welcome back. Awesome. So as I mentioned, Bobby Watts is our guest this evening. We're going to be talking uh, um, a lot of things. And he's from New York. So you know we're going to be talking New York because we got New three York. New Yorkers here. So look out, <laughs> world. We're going we're gonna to do some stuff today. Um, so, George, I want to hand it over to you. And uh, let's do some, uh, some love to our sponsor. Okay. So first and foremost, the Counterpart Show is brought to you by Wellness Resources, a family-owned and operated nutritional supplement company providing the highest quality clinically formulated supplements since 1985. Find out why Wellness Resources is the top choice for health-conscious individuals around the world. Make sure you go to myvitaminresource.com. And if you enter the promo code Counterparts, you will get free shipping on all orders. Cool. Okay, let's talk a little bit about our guest today. So today we have Mr. Bobby Watts. Now, Bobby Watts is the Chief Executive Officer of the National Health Care for the Homeless Council, which supports the 300 federally funded health care for the homeless programs and 100 medical respite providers with training, technical assistance, sharing the best practices, research, publications, and an active policy and advocacy program working to eliminate homelessness. He has served on numerous boards, government-appointed task forces, and work groups, including serving as the finance officer for the New York City HIV Health and Human Services Planning Council. Bobby brings with him 30 years of experience in administration, direct service, and implementation of homeless health services to the community, and we are absolutely delighted to have him on this program. So, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bobby Watts. Woo! All right. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on, uh, Bobby. We really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to us. Oh, thank you. And George, I'm going to try to bring you along whenever uh, I need an introduction. <laughs> thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, he's gotten really good at that. It's, uh, that's why he does it, because I, 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 I tend to stutter. Um, <laughs> but we want to thank you for being on. We know that you're uh, from New York, and um, that's always a, an exciting thing for, for me and for us, because we've um, lived the life. We're also probably all similar in, in age around, and we remember what New York was and what it's become and it's gotten so much better, obviously. And, um, it's the improvements have been tremendous. And so it's just exciting to have us here. Now, here we are, you know, having this conversation and all coming, um, from that area, which is really cool. So it's great. I'm excited Absolutely. about it. Absolutely. I'm glad to be here. I've watched a few of your shows and I really love the chemistry between the two of you. Uh, 
the lightness, the fun, as well as the serious conversation. So I'm really glad to be here. Thank you for having we me. We appreciate it. Yeah, you know, we're, we're cousins, so we've known each other a very long time. I've known George, you know, uh, when he was shorter than me. <laughs> right. I mean, <laughs> you can imagine that. Yeah, so. it wasn't, uh, that didn't take too long to, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good five years I had. Um, but um, I wanted to... Uh, start off george has like official questions he's like mr organized when it comes to the questions i like to kind of free flow a little bit but so i'm going to turn it over to george so you can ask our first question and then we're gonna rock and roll yeah so for one of the first things i like to do especially when we have a guest on i like to learn a little bit about them learn about them growing up um you know and and eventually how they got into what they're doing and you know your mission is absolutely you know amazing and what you're doing here so but tell us a little bit about growing up in new york and 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 then eventually kind of like what led you to your current uh mission yeah thank you uh, and though i am known far and wide as a new yorker i've really was born in North Carolina, okay. um, right. old enough to have been born in Gaston County Negro Hospital under Jim Crow. And um, my parents separated when I was very young. Um, and my mom brought my two older sisters and me to New York. And one of my first memories was waking up on a couch in my aunt's house in the Bronx, because we were doubled up. My mom, you know, we, she was getting situated. And then um, when I was about five years old, we moved to um, uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn, um, and that's where I, and that's really where I grew up in, yeah, in okay. Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Okay. And this was when it was the bad old days. Yeah, it was right. always going to be gentrifying, and it took about 20, 30 years before it right. really did. But that was I was long gone by then. And um, fortunately, my mom lived in the same apartment that I grew up in for about fifty years. And I'll wow. bring my kids. I, they were, we, they were born and raised in the Bronx, we'd come back to visit and they'd say, Dad, how come we can't live here? And I would just right. have to say, we can't afford it. <laughs> it was really, really nice. But uh, growing up, it was the pretty much the gang capital of New York. Right. And uh, right. I was very fortunate in that my mom was a teacher. So going to public school, I always was aware um, that um, though it was a poor neighborhood, I was aware that I was not poor that we were better off than those who were living in the projects or in tenements. And for whatever reason, that always stuck with me. And mm -hmm. I realized it was pretty much just an accident of birth, not because I was smarter or better. Right. Um, and um, yeah, and it wasn't until I left my neighborhood to go to high school in Manhattan that I realized, you know, we're pretty far down. And then I went to college in upstate New York and realized we were really, really far down. Yeah. But fortunately, it personally, it never got to why don't I have as much as other people? Um, mm -hmm. It was why do so why do people have so much while other people don't have their basic needs met? Correct. So for whatever reason, that's always been my mentality. And um, that really was a bridge into caring about the poor and and which uh, was one of the reasons why I got into this work. Yeah, and it's interesting because you mentioned how you knew, you understood that you weren't poor or as poor as those that were around. And I had the same kind of thing because my grandparents, you know, they worked, they were, you know, they were almost retired. But my grandfather was still working when I was born, but he retired a few years later. We always had food. There was always, you know, we always had clothing. It was, you know, that part outside things were going <laughs> insane. But inside, there was the stability that we had there. And I think that's the same viewpoint that I took was like, you know, I, I'm very lucky. 
-hmm. I'm just very lucky that I was born here. These are my grandparents. This is my mom. And these are my siblings. And we're all like where we love each other. And we kind of had a little cocoon of safety, you know, and we were able to um, all get out and, you know, and by get out, I don't like, I don't want to say get out like in a negative way, but we were all able to, to expand in what we wanted to do and to help others. Um, so that's awesome. When you, when you went to, um, do you remember the moment? Because it's always like, I remember the moment when I wanted to play guitar, for instance, or the moment where I wanted to do something. Do you remember the moment where you said, I need to help? Yeah, well, there's several ways to answer that question. So I always was sensitive and I don't even, you know, as a kid, we didn't grow up in a religious household. And for Christmas, I just remember telling my mom, don't give me any Christmas presents. It's not my birthday. Let's send this to, you know, some poor wow. kid overseas or whatever. So that was always my, I mean, I got Christmas presents. Right, and I enjoyed right, right. them, right. but I would also say that. Um, yeah. um, so and then when I was um, in college, really became engaged in uh, social activism, um, you know, on, on campus and in the town, uh, there was there were two poor communities and I did volunteer work uh, one summer in one. And, well, actually it was paid at a at the at a community center in one side and then the next year, the other. So I was really engaged in the town as well as on the campus and um, that was like a refuge. The town was like a refuge for me. College life is like an artificial life. Everybody is young. Everybody is smart. Everybody is pretty um, and um, kind of sheltered from the real world of struggle uh, mm -hmm. while they're in this this four years being taken care of by their parents, many of them. Mm -hmm. um, so that was that really helped ground me. And um, even during those years um, in needing to be involved in in, in communities. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, sorry, George. I'll, no, again, go, go, go. I'll, just, I'll just keep talking. Um, <laughs> we know, <laughs> and I will too. <laughs> yeah. Do you find it that it's that it was diff had you not done those volunteer or those paid uh, uh, those you know um, help um, positions? Do you think it would have been different because it's it's really difficult for you know for college kids that are in like you said they're in this kind of bubble. And the world is coming through or their phones today, right? The world is on the phone and whichever side you're looking at, it may be skewed in one way, skewed in another way. So there's really not a lot to experience. You decided to go experience it. Yeah. It, you know, like I said, it was like, a, it was like a lifeline for me. Um, yeah. When I went to school, I went there what I refused to let my kids do. I went there sight unseen. So I grew up in Brooklyn, tall trees, used to ride in the subway to, to, to high school in Manhattan, hanging out in Times Square, da 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 da. And this is a beautiful place, uh, Ithaca, New York, beautiful. Oh, yeah, um, but it was, for me, it was culture shock. I didn't realize till many years later that yeah. what I was experiencing was culture shock. And, mm -hmm. um, and you know, my neighborhood was primarily uh, Latinx, which in that time meant almost exclusively Puerto Rican right. and, and, and some African-Americans, some Asian and some white, but primarily uh, um, Puerto Rican and black. And then went to campus, which was a predominantly white institution. And like, where's, where, where's the buildings? 
Right. Where's the concrete right. sidewalks right. and where right. are the black people? Yeah. So got involved um, through a roundabout way in a local black church downtown. And that was and then that through that got involved with the community. Um, and they just really took me under their wings. They were just very nurturing of all of the black students. They were though it was in upstate New York. It really was like a piece of down south because that's where mm -hmm. most of the people had, had, had migrated from. Oh. Um, and really um, just really took me in uh, for which I'm forever grateful. Um, but it helped me because being involved in campus activism and, you know, the struggle, um, it, it was kind of theoretical in the sense of you're just thinking about students. And it, I really felt when I was working with the black church and seeing what their struggles were and that helped me to see, no, this is, can't just be theory. It has to right. be, um, it has to be grounded in reality and, right. and what people, ordinary people's lives. And yeah. so working at the two community health centers with the kids uh, was very, very helpful for me. Yeah. Uh, awareness level is is huge. And it seems like your awareness level at a young age was pretty high. So I was actually going to mention that because you, you think about it, you know, kids, you know, a lot, you know, a good majority of kids growing up, they, they don't have that awareness of, of you know, even giving back, right? Because a lot of the kids are like, you know, take, 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 take that type of thing. When you when you even said about the, the Christmas gifts and stuff like that, and you know, I don't need Christmas gifts. I mean, it's something you really you don't hear a lot of, right? But at the same time, you're you're um, you're you're there's something in you that that's saying, I need to help, I need to give, I need to, and it it, it really is an amazing thing. Like I said, that you you really don't see a lot of, and I I mean, it's something that I admire in it because some people just Ha you you just have that within you yeah and so it's not something i can claim credit for right, right. it's like you know so i'm just very i'm right. very grateful that i had that mentality and not like oh i want to have what they have right, um, right, right. why why do they have more than i, I that yeah. could have been natural but yeah. um i'm grateful that it didn't because it's being grateful is a really important attribute for having yeah, a happy life sure. you know sure. um yeah of yeah. um, being content with what you have instead of desiring more uh, right. is more important than having more yeah. because if, you, if that's your goal having more you'll never you'll right. ne you'll never exactly. you'll never be satisfied exactly. right and funny enough when you have that viewpoint you actually end up getting exactly what you need you know and because of that you know yeah. you're not desiring for more and more and more but you know it is it is an interesting thing the the awareness level and I'm not shy to say George and I did have early on very high awareness of where we were we just knew i would look around and see buildings burning and all the other stuff and i was like well this isn't normal you know i mean yeah. we had presidents visit us and all the other stuff that was going on um the the one of the things that i remember where i was i would say you know not to say pride but just that i was happy that i made this decision was when i was about 11 years old i remember a friend of mine who's 12 and he was the only guy who would go outside of the fence of this little corridor that we had. He went outside this thing. And I remember one day I'm hanging out in this little corridor and I hear, and he's in a car and he's driving the car. He's 12 years old. And I'm like, at, you know, I'm, I'm like in the bars. I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, come on. And immediately I said, no way. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. I would never, but some other guys did, right. you know, and I just, from that moment on, I just realized, okay, there's a, a way you can go <laughs> and there's another way you can go. You know, there's the, and, and I didn't know the difference between, all I knew is that that one made me uncomfortable. 
you know, and that instinct, that awareness is really what saved, in my my opinion, all of us, God, uh, you know, obviously, but really we have that in, in us that we were able to see, I ain't going that way. <laughs> so, that's pretty scary. And yeah. I think Georgia could, could attest to some of those crazy, yeah. you know, environments. Definitely. So I wanted to, to talk a little bit about Williamsburg. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was a, uh, you know, I have friends that live in, you know, they live in Williamsburg now, you know, and it's really nice and they got these great places, but um, no, you know, when you were there, there was definitely no man buns. There was no, organic, <laughs> there was no organic anything. Correct. You did have Puerto Ricans, so you had great food. Yes, I did. Uh, you know, but when, when you were there, did you ever feel, uh, did you ever feel like you were in danger? Oh my goodness. I mean, when I would take my kids on a tour of the old neighborhood, this is where this is where they stole my bike. This is where they oh, held me up at gun yeah. park. Oh, this is where God. they robbed me of my jacket. Oh uh, wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, you know, you Funny. learn to be you know, I was very I'm average size now, but I was always short until, yeah. you know, like uh um late, late high school. Yeah. So um learn to be streetwise and uh -huh. um but yeah. 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 So, um, I mean, there were, unfortunately, um, because it was a lot of gangs, um, mm -hmm. especially on the south side of Williamsburg, um, there were shootings um, uh, in my, inter you know, IS-318, where I went to what we call junior high school, sixth to eighth grade, IS-318. There were um, a kid who was killed in the playground, um, um, caught between gunfire between gangs. So, um, having said that, um, there were times you felt danger around you, but I never felt like, um, super, super, um, scared because again, had Bobby's frozen, he froze Bobby. Are you guys there? Okay, yeah. yeah there you go. Um, um, was uh, Mitchell Lama housing, which you may know, it's mm -hmm. in New a New York City thing. Mm -hmm. So it's subsidized housing for lower middle income people. Mm -hmm. So it was a large complex, and that kept the gangs out because it was just too. Right. There was just it was a lot too many for them to come in. Right. And right. Um, and I didn't realize later, you know, it's subsidized, so. It was only a certain percentage of our of our income, and that gave my mom the freedom to invest in us in other ways, take us to art classes and and music yeah. classes and things like that. So it was an I didn't understand it completely, but I understand now I had an unfair advantage of my of my friends um, who didn't who weren't living there yeah, and going yeah. to school with me, um, but I knew I had it better off than they did, and that was always right. a concern. Right. Wow. Yeah. Talk about um, your your present work and how, like when you when it started, your your work with the homeless. How did that start? Yeah. So let me just say um, we had a lot of crime in New York. Mm -hmm. I mean, in Williamsburg and poverty. What we did not have in, when I was growing up there was homelessness. Mm -hmm. So later, when I would go visit my mom, you know, it was really posh and so forth. But the same subway stop I would get go take to school, you know, to high school and come back. 
there were pe homeless people sleeping there, even though the area had become wealthier and New York yeah. had become wealthier. Right. So being aware of um, um, rising homelessness and just that fact that, again, we have so much in this country and some people don't have the basic necessities. I decided um, before starting graduate school in public health that I was going to defer for a year um, to be a living counselor at a rescue mission. And that's what I did. It was in lower Manhattan. Um, now they changed the name. It was the, actually the first rescue mission in the country. Um, oh, wow. and, yeah. Now they changed the name to New York City Rescue Mission. Um, and so I lived there for what's going to be one year, but it ended up being two years. And um, the guys there were, I saw this was when crack was just starting. The epidemic was just starting. Mm -hmm. And so I saw the demographics of the guys there it was a men's a men's rescue mission just for men change in my before my eyes in the two years from maybe about 70 75 percent older white alcoholics to being about 50 50 that crowd but then young black and and, and latinx uh, men coming in um with where it was crack mm -hmm. and many of them were ones that i played basketball with on the playground went wow. to school with and um some of them were coming straight out of prison um and they didn't have a place to stay so they would come so it just reinforced to me um i met some guys who were, one guy was born in prison and um oh, wow. uh, other kids you know come came through the other guys came through the foster care system and it just really emphasized to me what I knew in my head and, and knew that we all don't have an equal shot in life. Mm -hmm. um, some of us are born with advantages um, that others aren't or born with disadvantages that others aren't. And it just um, saw how important it was that we try to meet the basic needs of people, right. and, you know, and this was a rescue mission. So there was a spiritual dimension to it as well as mm -hmm. um, feeding people, giving them clothes, giving them counseling, helping them find jobs. Um, but um, I loved it there. <laughs> I loved it there. And right. the guys really took me, the older guys took me under their wing um, the first week there. They said, come without, come with us on the street. And, and I got to see what their life was like going from place to place to get food and how they were treated and um, and trying to find a place to when it was raining to, to stay dry while they're outside. Mm -hmm. um, and that really, they really took me under their wing in ways they didn't have to. And wow. um, um, I, I, I learned a lot there that I still count on today. Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. And, you know, that environment also is is one that you know it's i feel like there were a lot of um of us were failed in school um because we weren't educated in certain elements of survival certain like drug like right now i'm i we had a guy on a couple of weeks ago uh, his name is uh, bobby wiggins and he worked with the uh, drug um uh, drugfreeworld.org and he's done almost a million um, presentations to a million kids like across the, the world, actually international, mm -hmm. and just amazing. And a lot of these, a lot of the young kids really just didn't know until this presentation was given to them what certain drugs do. You know what certain what you know they lead to other things, and um, and it because it's always for me anyway. I've always it's always been that 
that's been the problem. I had, I experienced homelessness for about a year. Um, and I was in a shelter and I did the, the welfare hotel kind of thing, um, you know, with my family, you know, so it was like, we were together and, but it was, I mean, it, it's, it was so bad. You know, we got, we had all our stuff stolen. Like we had our stuff in our, we had to go out when we came back, everything was gone, like all our clothes. So it was really, really, the, the struggle was there. But the one thing that we, we did have was we were educated. My mother, who also was a teacher for a little while at, at our Catholic school, was always telling us about drugs, stay away. This is what it does. This is what, you know, so we were, I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never done anything in anywhere just because I was so terrified of it growing up, which is because then, and then you get to see the results of it, you know, um, can you talk a little bit about that as far as like how it actually, when, when you were there during those years, you know, how much of that is rehabilitation money goes into that as, you know, even more than trying to, to get housing. Wow. That's a hard question. So let me see if I understand it. Um, So I, I'm going to probably have to turn it around uh, yeah, and answer it in a different way than you think I'm going to sure. answer it or that sure. um, than you answer. So one of the things is while there are life control, substance, substance use disorder is a life controlling um, condition uh, and it can really affect you. There are many people who have substance use disorders that are housed. Correct. There are many people who have, and actually the majority of people. Right, uh, right. Well, I was going to say most of them. Are. Yeah, and the majority of people with severe, you know, with mental illness are housed. Uh -huh. right. So the difference is when someone is experiencing homelessness and they have that condition, the defining thing is that they don't have housing and they don't have services to get them into housing. Right. Um, um, so we don't, as a country, we don't provide enough mental health services, substance use disorder services. We certainly don't provide enough housing for people, even though it is well within our means as a country to do that if, right. if we so chose, um, but we have chosen not to. So um, yes, I want to focus on people who need help to get out of it, uh, out of substance use disorders. Um, if they, so, you know, most everybody I know, um, unless they are highly functioning, um, uh, substance use abuser, um, wants to get out, but right. it's very hard, especially if you don't have the right services. And we know that one's size doesn't fit all at the rescue mission. That was, you know, abstinence. We just want you to stop period. Right. Some people that works and God bless them. And I'm thankful for that. And some people through, you know, have a spiritual renewal and they can just stop. I know many people that have, most people don't. And um, so we want to have a full array of services that can help them. Now we know, especially with opioid addiction, medication assisted treatment is extremely effective mm -hmm. in helping control the uh, addiction um, and helping people um, come off of and stop stop using the substances as, as they want to. Mm -hmm. um, so um, we spend um, a lot more money 
than we should in criminalizing what is really, a, in my point of view, in most public health people's point of view, a medical people's point of view, a medical condition. We understand it mm -hmm. as a medical condition. Now, it's not just a matter of willpower, though that there is a part of that that's necessary to um, overcome um, addiction, um, but it is... Um, yeah. It, 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 we, we spend a lot more criminalizing it, locking people up, um, um, both for mental illness and for a substance use disorder. And actually the highest, where you're gonna find most people, uh, most with mental illness in New York City is in Rikers Island um, mm -hmm. because they're not getting the treatment that they need and and it gets criminalized, their, their behavior. So we're not spending nearly enough on rehabilitation, on recovery, or treatment. Yeah. And and that was great. You answered exactly what I Okay. <laughs> I know the way I asked it, I sometimes read <laughs> um but it, it really is it's amazing to me. Um this is still a very prosperous country. <laughs> yeah. And we uh, we definitely have the means as you as you mentioned. Um and it's not you're right it's 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 not just the willpower. I mean it is mental there is uh, the gentleman that we had on talked also about how some of these drugs lodge into the fatty tissues of your mm -hmm. cells. So right. when you, you can actually, even if you're off of it for a month, something can turn on and yep. re stimulate something. And, you, you know, so it is a heavy, heavy thing, um, you know, so that that much I definitely do know. But in in your um, what what do you think is is needed as far as trying to raise the awareness of that we need more funding you know we're sending a lot of money i don't want to get into the i won't say the p word but i want to get into the but we you know we're sending money to a lot of other places and putting them into a lot of other things that really when you look at it can actually handle millions of people could house millions of people you know what i mean we we've gone over that you know numerous times and um so what what's your thought on it what, what's the one thing that you think people really need to understand and to to know about. Wow, one thing um, or two. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Give him a break, John. But, 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 but I'm still All thinking. Right. What is the P thing? I'll give you two. George, I'll give you two. I don't want to. I don't want you to say it. But George, do you know what the P thing yeah. is? Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So I'm. I gotta. I'm gonna try to figure. Knowing this man for fifty years, I you know. Okay. I know. But <laughs> you know, the one, yeah, I think you know the ones yeah. that we vote for. Those people. Yes. Okay. Oh, okay, sure. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> you, you know, um, I think most people are not aware of how little we spend on housing for the poor to meet their basic human needs compared to how much we subsidize housing for the wealthy, for the well, for the better, for the more well off in the term of private home ownership. Uh -huh. So um, uh, I, I spoke uh, out uh, in Orange County, one of the richest counties uh, in California, richest counties in the country um, once. And I started by saying how many lived, how many grew up in subsidized housing? I said, I found out I did, you know, Mitchell Mama housing in New York, da, da, da. No one else raised their hand. And then I went on to explain how we subsidize private home ownership in this country. So, um, you know, Benjamin Franklin said a penny saved is a penny earned. Um, and another way to look at it is I'm, I'm going to let you keep a, a penny that you should pay me. Uh, then that's a penny I'm 
I've, I've given you that, that I don't have anymore. So through the tax code, people who have private homes can write off their interest deduction. Uh, they, they can write off the interest, right. they can deduct that from their, from their taxes. That does almost nothing to help get a roof over people's heads. What right. it really means is whether you're gonna get a bigger house or, or a smaller house, but not whether you're gonna get a house or not. Um, we spend about, 50, HUD's budget is about $50 billion, which is to support uh, public housing projects, public housing authority you know, projects, uh, section eight vouchers and other ways of making housing affordable for poor people. Um, right now, only one out of four households that qualifies for the federal standard, for the federal requirement of being, of, uh, receives any help because we don't fund it enough. So you qualify for, you meet the federal guideline, which is pretty, pretty low, um, but we don't give, we only give uh, a subsidy for one out of four people. Meanwhile, for, which is a human need, you got to have that house. Right. You know, if, if you don't believe the housing is a human right, which we do at the National Healthcare for the Homeless Council do, the housing and healthcare are human rights. You have to admit this is a human need. Um, and, but at the same time, we spend in the most uh, recent estimate I've seen, and this is after the ta tax cuts of 2017, which reduced the amount that you can write off in your interest for your home. We, we are, we're subsidizing about $250 billion for private home ownership. Wow. So it people, and the wealthier you are, or the bigger the house you get, you know, up to that limit, the more um, subsidy you're getting. Um, so that's money that should be coming into the public coffers to be used for the general welfare that's going to home for those who are, are privately owning homes. Huh. So at the end of my of my talk there in Orange County, um, I said, now how many people <laughs> living yeah, grew up in right. subsidized housing? And, <laughs> and they realized, and several people came up to me and said, I never realized that. I never thought about wow. it. I don't need that. That didn't have any effect on me. Wow. Um, so we if we if we subsidize housing for the poor just by transferring um um it would be more just it'd be more equitable and we wouldn't have people on the streets of our nation we wouldn't have children sleeping in cars uh sleeping in welfare hotels um they would be stable um we um John, you mentioned how stable your home was, your family was. Uh -huh. um, I know how stable mine was just because my mom didn't have to worry about making rent um, because it was subsidized. I didn't know that at the time, right. but it, it made a huge difference compared to my oh. classmates who were living in tenements, uh, you know, near, you know, around us um, uh, who were precariously housed. Mm. So if the one yeah. one or two things would be how much yeah. how little we give yeah. right. to subsidize the basic human need for those who are poor in the richest country on earth and how much we give to those who are much wealthier for them to own a home when they don't really need it. Right. Yeah. I mean, when they I, don't need yeah. the help. Um, right. Right. Exactly. I mean, you're lucky you weren't uh, escorted out in Orange County. You know? <laughs> uh, Mr. Mr. Watts, can you? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, they asked me back three times. Yeah. So I've been there four times now. So. That's awesome. That's awesome. But yeah, that's uh, those. See, those are the kind of things that are. That's education. Right. I mean, this is where where something like this is really important. Like, we'll take this section of you actually saying this, and we'll blast it out so people can actually have that information because it's 
it's it's just something that just people did not know. I, I don't I didn't know that, and I think a lot of people don't. Mm-hmm. You know, um, do do you feel? I'm sorry, George. I'll let you. Uh, oh, thanks, John. I, pr- I appreciate it. <laughs> I forgot. I forgot you were. You I forgot I was here. It's I, forgot you came, I forgot you came today. <laughs> I showed up. I thought you were um, on PTO. Kind of piggy, piggybacking though on um, I you know your your story in Orange County and just kind of something more personal for me because I you know a few years ago before the, prior to the pandemic I went to LA it was the first time I had gone to LA and I guess I never really understood the issue there with homelessness until you're actually driving through the freeway and you're seeing the ten cities and you're seeing you know you're coming out of the airport I mean just it's all and I was completely shocked. My, my whole family was shocked. Yeah. And, you know, you kind of hear it in the back of your mind, you know, in the background, but you don't really understand it until you're actually seeing it. So, and then from what I understand, and I look after that, I had kind of looked at some of the numbers and stuff. And I know, you know, what they're saying is like, you know, let's say 2007, 2008, it wasn't as bad. And then like maybe in when it got to like 2015, 16, it just skyrocketed. And of course the pandemic did a whole nother job on that. But there was this notion there's this this fight, I guess you can call it, and going, you know, not talking about the P word, but people who do make these policies and things regarding, well, should we make the housing? Is should the housing be the first thing, or should the, you know, uh, should the help on the you know rehabilitation side be the first thing? Okay, and there's you know some that say, well, no, if you put them, if you make the housing, you put them in the housing, then you can figure out everything later. And then of course this back and forth. So I was just wondering on your concept, you know, on, on that, on that. On that sure. Issue. Yeah. You know, and these are things I wish I had known 30 years ago when I was living at the rescue mission, but um, Dr. Samson Barris about 30 years ago in New York city created an organization pathways to housing. Mm-hmm. And he is a psychologist and he was got very frustrated when um Back then, and it still is, many people have the idea, you have to show you are housing ready by meeting this criteria, this criteria, this criteria, right. to show that you are ready. Right. And so many people were falling short. You know, they may collect three, four, five steps, but don't get to step number 10. Um, and then they're back, you know. Um, he said, you know, why don't we just try putting people in housing mm-hmm. and get them stabilized and bring the services to them? Um, and and that that's it's a housing first movement. Um, There've been many studies, peer reviewed journals. It shows to be effective for many, many people. Mm -hmm. Again, you need to have many tools in your tool chest, but Mm -hmm. this is um, an approach that is extremely effective. Um, And it's found out even when services aren't required, when people are stabilized, then they're more likely to ask for the substance use uh, treatment mm-hmm. or them mm-hmm. or be compliant with their with their medications or meeting their appointments with their mental health uh, psychiatrist or counselor right. and, and so forth. Um, um, so I believe for many, many people, housing first, mm-hmm. uh, not housing only, it's mm-hmm. housing first combined okay. with services right. is extremely effective. And okay. there are guys that you know, at the mission, I, you know, we're trying to get them ready, uh, show, show that you're ready. Um, and the, uh, there's so many steps there that it was almost impossible for the average person to succeed. And um, um, so I think, um, yes, let's put them, get them stable. And we've seen this in the COVID pandemic. Right. Uh, for the first time, many cities, states said, let's 
to protect the health of people experiencing homelessness. Let's get them out of crowded shelters. Let's get them out of encampments, especially those who are medically frail or susceptible to COVID or have COVID. And let's put them in hotel rooms or in California, they also use RVs. Right. And um, many people, they went, they got stabilized, they got healthier. Um, many people then got back on their feet. Um, I do, one of the things why this is new to you, George, when you went to see LA, mm -hmm. New York is a shelter, uh, is a right to shelter city. Mm -hmm. So um, based on two court consent decrees in the 70s, um, homeless single adults and homeless families have a right to shelter in New York. So you see very few, relatively speaking, people on the streets right. of New York. Now it's changed in the five years since I've been here sure. in Nashville. Um, but still the vast majority, like 95% of people experiencing homelessness are in shelters, not on the streets. And it's much different in many cities in the rest of the country, including LA. Okay. So people don't necessarily, no one wants a, sh many people don't want a shelter on their corner, mm -hmm. but they re much rather have a shelter than have an encampment or uh, something where people right. are living out in the open, where they where they don't have a place where they can go to the bathroom, where right. they don't have a place where they can wash their clothes, where they don't have a place where their garbage is going to be picked up. So, right. um, um, yeah, yeah, I can go on and on, but yeah, I said yeah, no, no, absolutely no. Yeah, and you know, it's also a dignity. I, this yes. is why they do well. You know, mm -hmm. it's like someone now they they have their their self-respect, their dignity, they actually have a place that they can call their own, you know, then they can really focus. I mean, man, I can't imagine being an adult. I mean, I was like, I was 16 years old when it happened to me and I had adults that cared for me and I felt protected. So, but I, an, an adult that really has no place it, and suddenly you do, and you do have a place, you know, there's such a improvement in spirituality and, right your dignity and you just feel like, okay, now I can actually look, mm -hmm. I can focus on what I need to get done and take responsibility for this because this huge giant ordeal of not having a roof is gone now. Yeah. You know, it's like that to me is like a really, really important thing. Yeah. I mean, um, homelessness is deadly. It's bad for one's health. It kills prematurely. Yeah, it makes it harder to take care of any medical condition. It's much right. harder to take care of uh, if someone is un is unhoused than if they are stably housed. And um, you, we don't talk about it much, but the the trauma and the stress of being out on the streets or even in a crowded shelter is is a lot. Not having a a door that you can lock behind yourself. When all of us go home, first thing we do, is we right. go in and we close the door. And we usually, especially if we lived in the Bronx or Brooklyn, or you lock the door behind you. Yeah. Um, couple you of locks. <laughs> yes, right, a couple. Right. But you don't have that option. So if you're living out in the streets, if you're living in an, in an encampment, if um, even if you're living in a crowded shelter, uh, you know, you know, in a congregate shelter, not all of them are crowded. Um, so that does tremendous. Uh, harm to your body, the constant stress. Um, sleep deprivation is a huge problem yeah, among people yeah. experiencing homelessness. Yeah. And um, um, want to remind people that uh, sleep deprivation is a form of torture, according to the Geneva Convention. So we um, people experiencing homelessness, when we, when we don't get sleep, um, Research shows we don't make good decisions. We get, we're irritable, we're cranky. Our judgment is slowed and flawed. And um, 
And that's the constant state of people who um, aren't getting regular meals, um, don't have a place where they can necessarily store their things safely, um, know that they, you know, they can sleep in a park bench without getting rousted and move in the middle of the night. Um, and then we have these, these, all these other issues. But we've shown that when we put people stably housed, um, even for like a six months or a year in the COVID pandemic, it makes a big difference in people's lives. Um, because I'm not used to encampments, you know, being in New York where we didn't have a lot and mm -hmm. my former agency did do street medicine. Uh, we were the first one in New York City to do street medicine, but there still was most people were in the shelters. Here in Tennessee, it's the opposite, or at least in Nashville, it's the opposite. Most people are out in encampments and right. the woods and the parks. So I would I do volunteer and go there. And um, I stopped for about a year and a half during the first part of COVID. Mm -hmm. And when I went back, so many of the people I would see week after week, uh, month after month in encampments were now under the COVID programs in housing. So wow. we would visit them, take them clothes and food. And we found, oh, yes, I got my paperwork together. I got my, my work papers together now. Uh, I'm in treatment. Uh, some of them went back to work. Um, because wow. of the stability of having a home. And these are some people, if you had asked them, do you want to go into housing? Their thinking is shelter. Right. And they didn't want yeah, to go into right. a shelter. Right. Some people are, and I thank God for shelters. I worked in a rescue mission, a current living facility. facility. My former agency operated um, uh, a women's shelter. Um, um, but many people didn't want it. But when And they could not conceive that they could have a place where they could lock a door behind them. But hmm. when they were given that, um, they took it. Um, so when most people, even people say, no, I'd rather be outside than I don't want, I don't want shelter. I don't want housing. When you show them what we take for granted, just a very basic, it could be minute. There were uh, eight guys in one house, um, but they each had a room that mm. they could lock behind them and they shared, you know, the kitchen and the bathroom and so forth. Um, and they were happy, <laughs> but they right. never could have conceived that that's what was available to them before. It's, wow. in, it's in, interesting because I was watching a documentary on, on this and <clears throat> they were interviewing a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, those folks. And a, such a majority of them had one. It was really just one incident that happened. There was a divorce or there was a, you know, something that happened, they lost their house for whatever reason, they lost their job or whatever it is, and never imagined that they would be in that situation. Right. There was one, there was uh, one young lady who had a, a child that was a victim of domestic violence. And she said, I, I'm going to be homeless because I'm not going to raise my child in this environment. And she, you know, and, and you, you see this, and these, these are some of the stories that sometimes you don't hear. Because right. you just think, oh, there's a homeless person. You know, people think, oh, they're just homeless. They don't really want to do. But there's 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 so much that goes behind yeah. that that people really don't see. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to. Uh, I'm sorry. Did you want to respond to that? No, no, I agree. I yeah. agree. Um, I wanted to also. We're we're at almost 46 minutes. Time flies. Push. Um, but you also you were you raised um, three boys, and you know George and I are fathers. And you know, one of the things that is, you know, you know, what we're, we're asking for advice. We have, <laughs> we, have, we have young kids, but how did you convey to your children? Because our kids are having a completely different experience. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> My kids have no idea. You know, they're <laughs> concerned about their Robux and 
getting on their computers and 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 things, which is fine, you know. Um, and I want them to under, but I also want them to understand that this is not this is you know they're they're the product of struggles and a lot of social work and a lot of a commitment from family to that where they are right now. What was your you know your conversations with your with your sons? Well, um, wow. I, I I don't know if they're listening and if they'll agree, but <laughs> you know, um, really wanted them to understand how privileged we 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 are, and um, you know, fortunately, you know, we my wife and I made some conscious decisions. Um, I refused to leave New York, you know, the city, and move to the suburbs. Um, I, I, you know, stayed in the Bronx, um, and that was on purpose because I want I especially doing the work I, 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 I'm doing, was doing, I didn't, I wanted them to understand and to be, as well as get the benefits of, of growing up in New York and being exposed right. to, so, I mean, I'm so grateful I did. And I'm so grateful that I, I had the opportunity to raise them there, but we made some conscious choices. Um, um, basically every church we joined had a homeless ministry and outreach. So they got to see it not as, um, charity um but these are our brothers and sisters so when uh -huh. our youngest one was six months old we were attending um a church on the upper west side of manhattan and we were attend what they call the homeless service in the evening on sunday evening and people would take them from us <laughs> and we wouldn't see them They'd pass them around because how often people would someone trust your child would they be trusted but mm -hmm. we knew they were completely wow. safe and, uh, you know, their Sunday school teacher at one point was sleeping under plastic at a, at a you know, at a, in a bench at, um, uh, by, um, by the boathouse on um, uh, 79th Street. Um, and um, so they got to see that as well as my work. Um, so our neighborhood was a working class neighborhood in the Northeast Bronx. But when we first moved there, like, on our corner was like drug bazaar. Mm -hmm. um, um, and, you know, we got to talk about what that was. Um, but mostly it's just to let them know how blessed we were um, as um, uh, not just compared to kids in the this country, but our kids in the world. Um, so we would always talk about what the conditions are with, you know, in other, in other countries and other nations and uh, pray for them. And um, when my kids, you know, oh, one of the first things kids say is it's not fair, you know, da, 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 it's not fair. Yeah. I say, yeah, you're right. You're right. It's not fair that you get to walk over there and turn on uh, the sink and get a glass of water. And some kid in another country has to walk two miles to carry water back, you know, back, you know, you know, back to his family. Um, no, it's not fair. You're right. Um, um, yeah. So, you know, for whatever reason, like I said, I was always aware how much I had mm -hmm. and I wanted to pass that on to them of just how much they had. Um, and um, and they got to see that, you know, fortunately, both my wife and I were, you know, college graduates um, and not all of the kids in our neighborhood or in our church were. Um, so they got to really see how fortunate they were and hopefully take take that lesson with them. And um, 
And I think they have. Our oldest son uh, works for college and runs a program for inner city kids in Chicago. And he said, my mom, he said, my dad's in public health and my mom's a social worker. Uh, I'm, I'm destined to never right. make a lot of money. <laughs> but, he, but he's very happy. He does very worth, worthwhile stuff. Of course. Of course. That's awesome. That's great. Uh, thank you for that. Um, and by the way, you know, we're, we're, I, w I am blessed that I was born and raised in New York. I love New York. I know that it was whatever it was, but like George and I, I remember George, we were driving into New York once from, uh, we were going over the Brooklyn Bridge. You remember that one day we were in the car, we we're going to like a rehearsal or something and you know, we played in a band and we just remember like crossing the, 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 the Brooklyn Bridge and that view and and, yeah. and just making a joke it's like we made it you know where we live here right we're yeah. like yelling we made it we're in new york you know yeah because it yeah. was it's such a beautiful place so yeah definitely even though we had those uh those experiences we were blessed that we were there and um blessed that we were able to also help others that were there and are continuing to do that um so one of the things that we uh we do at at you know we always ask our guests um, during the last two years, it's been tremendously difficult for and challenging for many people across the world. Um, what is, um, some people are out there. Some people are still afraid. Some, you know, they're, they're still kind of like just kind of getting out. Um, what advice or words of wisdom would you give to someone out there that's actually in a moment right now where they're not sure exactly what the future holds for them? Wow. You told me you were going to ask me that question. <laughs> That's a really hard question. A good question. Because you can attack it from so many angles. Right. Um, I'm going to say that I think it's really important that we look to stay connected to someone. Um, one of the biggest problems in the pandemic was uh, people were some of their connections were were torn or severed mm -hmm. and we are social beings you know we're made to be in connection with other people and um i think that is so important to reestablish that you know if it can be electronically electronically the more it can be in person where you feel safe um uh, that's even better but the main thing is not to stay alone not to be alone and almost no matter what you're going through, someone else is going through it too, or has gone through it already. So, um, you know, I remember what one minister said to me. Um, uh, he said, you know, we can get through anything as long as we're not going through it alone. Mm. And I've found that to be true. So really urge people to maintain that human connection. It's actually, you know, it's, it's a human connection, um, but it, it also can... Um, not just help our emotions and, but it also is a, a spiritual connection to other people that we, right. that we don't want to overlook, um, in this pandemic or, or any situation. Um, it's really, really important to cultivate friendships and maintain them. Um, of one old person, older elderly person to me many years ago, and I still remember said a, a French, a friend is like a jewel. Um, you never want to throw it away. And the longer you have it, the more precious it becomes to you. So maintain those friendships. Uh, you mentioned you guys been friends for a long time. I was brought in, in my apartment building where I grew up. Um, my best friend, we, we called each other brothers. Um, 
we were just talking, we've been friends for 50 years. Um, uh, uh, Willie Mercado, uh, former New York City policeman and now uh, living out in Las Vegas and working. Um, but we just realized how fortunate we are to be have someone, you know, be friends for 50 years. Yeah, um, yeah but we, I, yeah, we're, yeah. Yeah, definitely. But thank you so much for that. I really definitely. appreciate that. Um, awesome. So we're almost approaching an hour. I can't believe it. Uh, we'd wow. love to have you back someday and we'll talk more because we actually, uh, we also didn't cover the, uh, the respite program that you also are the CEO, which I think is also an amazing program as well. Maybe we can set something up in the future and, and talk about that because that's also fantastic. Um, Bobby Watts, thank you so much. Appreciate you taking the time and uh, we love it. Thank you. It's an honor. Thank Absolutely. you, George. Thank you, thank John. You. Thank All you. right. Thank you. Thank you. Bobby wow. Watts. Wow. I told great, him. Man. Great conversation. Awesome. What, a, what a cool guy, too. Just know, a, just a and, cool... and he's like, he's so on point. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, he just has the data. He has the information. He's lived it yes. for so long that he knows, you know. So every question was just like nailed, you know. So, I mean, oh, and that, that to me absolutely. is really yes. inspirational. Wonderful. And growing up in that environment, and by the way, he said he was, you know, born, I think, North Carolina, I think. Mm -hmm. But once you're in New York for more than 10 years, yeah, you're, over, you're, wherever, you're in New York no matter what. doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm sorry. Wherever you were born, <laughs> it's, you're, it's you're no longer right. a thing. You know, it's like you're, you're in New York, Bobby. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> all right. I want to thank everybody for uh, tuning in. We appreciate y'all very much. Uh, we will see you all again next week, 7 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. George Batista, John Henry Soto counterparts thank you very much have a wonderful week ahead and as always peace